turn to John chapter 11. John 11. And Ben is going to bring us our reading. John 11, verses 1 to 44. Great. John chapter 11, from verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you were going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the, rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Christ, the son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, 
If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this day there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave, grave clothes and let him go. This is God's word. Thanks very much indeed. And um, <clears throat> once again, thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you. Um, as we as a family move down to London in June or July, God willing, I hope we'll be able to come and pay you a visit and, at CCM and, and join to worship with you there uh, as a family on one of the Sundays that, as, as we get there. Um, it's been terrific to meet some of you, those of you I've not had a chance to meet, I'm sorry, but uh, on, on another occasion. I'm going to be moving pretty quickly off from the end of this session because my father-in-law, um, it was his 80th birthday. In fact, there were, low, there were at least four big birthdays with a zero on the end in our family, an 80 and 90 and 250s last year, all under lockdown. None of them were celebrated, but it's my father-in-law's 81st birthday today. So he's in North London, and, and we're going to go and join them for, um, to, eat, to eat together. So that means I need to leave here pretty much at the end of this next session to join them for those celebrations. Um, so forgive me for that. Um, let's pray, shall we? And we're going to come and look at this extraordinary uh, passage together. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. Father, thank you so much for this extraordinary true story in the Bible that gives us great hope and confidence that whatever our struggles in life, a day is coming when you will raise us from the grave and bring us into your presence, your most magnificent, glorious presence for all eternity. Help us to see our troubles as indeed light and momentary, real as they are to us, in the light of eternity, and may what we learn together now help us uh, to encourage one another to uh, stand firm to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. So this final talk, it, it, the notes are there for you if, you if you want to follow them. We're thinking about a particular aspect of weakness, and this one is what we might call unfulfilled expectations. 
or, to put it in other words, at dealing with disappointments. Paul Mallard, I saw just as I was walking past that there are still a couple of copies of this left. It's called Invest Your Disappointments by Paul Mallard, which is a sort of a look at the suffering question. So he's got Invest Your Suffering and this one, Invest Your Disappointments. And he describes disappointment here as discovering that life is not what we would hope it would be. And I think for the most part in the book, he means the kind of regrets that come from asking the question, if only. I want, if only this had happened, or if only I'd had that opportunity. The kind of what might have been, what could have been, what should have been that haven't come to pass, if you like. That sort of seems to be the idea. And I guess when we're young, we have a particular vision of the future. Um, I wonder what that looks like for you today. Uh, for many, it's about maybe climbing the career ladder to the top of the tree. For many, it's about getting married, perhaps one day starting a family. Some of us are already starting to think about uh, retirement and what that could mean and should mean. It could be about traveling the world. I don't know what it is for you, your hopes, your ambitions, your dreams, the kind of things that you feel, well, if I didn't do that, if that never happened to me, if I missed out on that opportunity, well, you know, I'd really feel that life had not lived up to all my expectations. Now, the reality is, sooner or later, we find that things we hoped we might do or achieve or be pass by. You get to a certain age where you realize perhaps certain uh, hobbies or interests, running a marathon or whatever, seem now a faint and distant uh, dream. They're not going to come true. And when our worlds fail to live up to our expectations, we do feel a sense of loss. And we do feel a sense of sadness or, or frustration. What makes this kind of weakness maybe more difficult for us um, is that uh, many of the things that we desire are good things. And the Bible says they're good things. Marriage and children and a job and these kind of things. Uh, they're good gifts of God. And what makes this particular challenge hard is that we look at the fact that God seems to be giving some of these gifts to other people and not to us. And that's painful. When we think, well, why does that person seem to have everything from God and I, and I don't? I have a brother who's about a year or so older than I am, just a, uh, 14 months or so. And my parents worked really hard particularly in our younger years, to show us that they were being fair in what they gave to us as, as gifts and as presents. And the way they typically did that was just to buy us the same things. <laughs> you know, it's kind of one would be green and the other would be blue and that kind of thing. You get the idea. They basically wanted to show that they were fair. And yet, when you think about a father in heaven, the question is, do you feel he's been fair to you? Or do you worry that he might not give you a gift that you would really like that he has given to others? And so a, a disappointment with circumstances can quickly turn into a disappointment with God for our circumstances. And we're going to look at this chapter of, of John, chapter 11, and, and hopefully find something of an answer to a question that's bigger that, than, than our brains can cope with, I'm sure. So we're looking at a story from the Bible of believers in Jesus, Mary and Martha, who experience real deep turmoil because Jesus doesn't answer their prayer in the way that they were expecting or hoping for. 
It's a kind of, if only you had been here, Jesus, kind of prayer. And in fact, both Mary and Martha, when they first meet Jesus, as he comes to this situation, they both say exactly the same thing. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. So turn back to chapter 11, and you see there's a man called Lazarus. We're told that he's ill or sick, verse 1, and that his sisters, Mary and Martha, send for Jesus, verse 3. They're well known to Jesus. In fact, they don't even seem to need to tell Jesus what they want him to do. Do you notice that? They just say, verse 3, Lord, the one you love is sick. And it, surely they don't need to say any more, do they? It's obvious what's going to happen next. Jesus is going to drop everything and come. The one you love is the one who is sick. And verse 5, John goes out of his way to tell us that they were right in this conclusion about Jesus' love. Do you see that, verse 5? John tells us Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so surely Jesus will drop everything to deal with a medical emergency. But look at five and six. Now, Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So, verse six, or yet in some NIV translations, ESV has the word so. He loved them so. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Now, isn't that the most extraordinary thing? He loved them so he didn't do anything. He stayed away. He wasn't stuck in traffic. He wasn't uh, distracted or overtaken by a more urgent need. No, he made a deliberate choice, a decision not to intervene, to do nothing. And I guess here is our sort of first clue that Jesus might say no to a desire of your heart because he loves you. He might say no because he loves you, and that can be a really hard lesson to learn. Just ask John Calvin. He and his wife only ever had one child. Their son died not long after he was born. And Calvin wrote a letter to a friend and said, The Lord has certainly inflicted a severe and bitter wound in the death of our infant son. But he is himself a father and knows best what is good for his children. Now that can only make sense. It can only make sense if God has a greater good in mind than to let you live a happy life here and now. Do you see that? It only makes sense if God has a greater good in mind than to simply say yes to your every desire and give you the happiest life that you might seek now. And the clue that God has a greater good in mind, even through the suffering of Mary and Martha by his decision to do nothing, the clue is there in verse 4. We're given it right up front. They don't know this, remember. We're told at the beginning of the story what they will learn by the end. Verse 4, this illness will not end 
in death. It will include death. But it won't end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So just as Paul learns in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that actually God is glorified in and through human weakness, that that's where his greatest glory is made manifest, supremely seen in Jesus, the death of his own son on the cross. So now Mary and Martha are going to learn that Jesus will say no to their urgent request because Jesus will be glorified in actually allowing Lazarus to die and then raising him from the dead. Can you trust God enough to allow him to disappoint you? To say no to something or to delay something? I mean, to watch your brother die while you wait for Jesus to come? That must have been a terrible thing. That must have been a truly, truly troubling time. Surely Jesus is going to come. And by the time Jesus does arrive, verse 17, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. He doesn't delay by a few hours. Four days dead before Jesus appears. And Mary and then Martha give their if only speech to Jesus. Verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I don't think this is a statement of doubt, but it is a statement of bewilderment and confusion and a, I can't see what you're doing and why you would do this. It is bewilderment. I don't personally think it's a situation of doubt. But Paul himself, in that passage that we sometimes call the jar of clay passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, talks about his own experience of troubles when he says we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not destroyed. Perplexed, even an apostle can say, Lord, I do not understand what is going on, or why you have allowed this. Within a year of starting our church, a member of our congregation died of carbon monoxide poisoning. It was the first funeral in our church family. She was barely 30 years old. She was given her life to serve in Christ. She was working for Birmingham City Mission, and it made no sense. We were in a Mary and Martha moment as a church. Lord, this, we don't understand we're bewildered. It makes no sense if only you had intervened. And we need to, as Christians, learn and learn and trust and learn that we can trust Jesus in every circumstance of our life, even if Jesus seems to have a bigger purpose that we can't quite see just yet. So I think he lets their prayer go unanswered because he knows that this way will bring more glory to God. That's what he seems to be saying in verse 4. Somehow, in some way, our suffering will resolve itself in greater glory to God. Only if Lazarus dies will the world begin to see that Jesus has the power of life over death. And by the end of the chapter, there are people who've become believers 
because of Lazarus's death. And uh, sorry, we see that, I think, in verse uh, 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Verse 45. So through human tragedy, we sometimes find that people find their way to faith in Christ. And it also serves to strengthen, this great tragedy serves to strengthen the faith of Mary and Martha. Because by the time you get to chapter 12, we read these words, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So that's what one of these sisters does after Lazarus has has been wonderfully restored. It strengthens their faith and brings the salvation of many. It's kind of a case study of that verse, Romans 8, verse 28. God works for the good of all who love him. But it wasn't obvious at the time. It was, in fact, deeply, deeply traumatic and painful. Often we don't see in the moment how God will use this experience to mold our characters, to increase our trust, to build our hope. And that's why sometimes you need the stories of those who've gone through it and out the other side to help you while you're in the valley of darkness to hold on to what you as yet can't understand. So maybe it's reading it from a book, or maybe it's the testimonies that we've heard or have heard shared even over this weekend. Well, it's true of of Mary and Martha. It's also the disappointment of delay is something we find elsewhere in the scriptures. Um, Abraham and Sarah with their cry, not if only, but a cry of, but when? God gives to to Abraham the promise in chapter 12 to bless him, to make of him a great nation, the promise of many descendants. The problem is Abraham's 75, and his wife had just collected her pension too. And by Genesis 17, the promise was unfulfilled. He's 99, and uh, his wife is 90, and no children yet. Now, God could have given them children at 75, He could have spoken to Abraham in his 30s and they could have had descendants in in a natural way, but God chose to delay. And he seems to have done it for a reason. Would you turn, keep a thumb in, John, but would you turn to Romans chapter 4? And this is Paul's commentary on what God was doing through the if only but when cry of Abraham. Verse 18 of chapter 4 of Romans, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do 
what he had promised. I like that verse 20. He was strengthened in his faith, even whilst he had to wait for the promise to be fulfilled and gave glory to God as a result, says the Apostle Paul. So sometimes God will use a form of weakness that is a disappointment, and if only moment, to strengthen us in our faith. So do you feel that God has maybe singled you out for a a trial by withholding a good gift from you that you have longed for? Well, don't think that... uh, God has pleasure in this. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. But you can understand that God may have a purpose in it. And the question is whether we can trust. Vaughan Roberts uh, put it this way. He said, I have found that those I've learned most from have invariably been believers who have grown in Christian maturity by persevering through significant difficulties. The experience of blindness, depression, alcoholism, a difficult marriage, or whatever the struggle may have been is certainly not good in and of itself, and yet God has worked good through it, both in the gold he has refined in their lives and the blessing he has ministered through them. I've seen the same dynamic at work in some godly believers who seem to experience an intractable attraction to the same sex by learning, no doubt, through many difficult times to look to Christ for the ultimate fulfillment of their relational longings. They have grown into a deep and joyful relationship with him. Their own experience of suffering has also made them sensitive and equipped to help others who struggle in various ways. So what if all your wishes for life don't come true? What if you feel disappointed? What if you don't marry or ever own your own home or travel the world or turn heads in the street or write a best-selling book? What then? But it seems to me that your life in lots of ways will start to look more like Jesus's life. Born in an obscure village, a child of a peasant woman, grew up in another obscure village, worked in a carpenter's shop, never saw a film, never played football, let alone go to a match. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from his home. He did none of those things that are on the top of our wish list and associated with glory. And then at the age of 33, his friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through a a mockery of a show trial. He was nailed to a cross between thieves. And while he was dying, executioners gambled for his only clothing, the only property he ever owned here on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Isn't that a remarkably unfulfilled and disappointing life? And now he's seated at the right hand of God. And this Lord's Day, millions upon millions of people on earth will worship him. 
It's estimated that something up to 120 million people will worship Jesus in China alone today. And he's the central figure of the human race. But humanly speaking, his life amounted to nothing. But in the hands of a sovereign God, he was saving the world. And as someone has said, of all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. And there are so many more heroes of the Gospels who rank amongst the world's underachievers. So what is the greatest disappointment? Well, maybe the greatest disappointment is to finally find the gospel a disappointment to ourselves. To say, is it worth being a Christian if the things that I would like in life can't be fulfilled through living for Jesus? Well, only if we don't understand where this is all heading and God's intention and purposes. Because there will be an end to disappointments for anyone who is following Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Our unfulfilled desires, ambitions, hopes, they're actually serving to point us towards a future in which every desire of our heart will be fulfilled. So if you feel, feel life isn't living up to your expectations, maybe that's because God has a greater purpose for you that won't be fulfilled in this world, but will be fulfilled in the next. We don't lose heart, Paul says, chapter 4, verse 16, because God isn't actually saying no to us. He is saying not yet. What you seek is finally yours in Christ. So could you be reconciled to singleness? Well, only if you believe God has a greater purpose in it. Could you settle for being a workplace underachiever? Yes, once you accept that through it, God is keeping your identity in Christ and not caught up in the world. Could you accept relative poverty and obscurity because you decide to serve the Lord on the mission field? No, we need this confidence that Paul shows us here that to believe that our greatest goal in life and therefore our biggest ambition is for something that this world can never give us and was never designed to give us. C.S. Lewis, as he always does, puts it so wonderfully and beautifully when he says there are better things ahead than anything we leave behind. 
I spoke at a retirement village to a group of 20 believers. Their average age is probably about 83. And it was the most lovely thing to tell these 20 believers, your best years are ahead of you. Which is a nonsense to the world, but to a Christian, it's true. They had very little, in many ways, left to live for here on earth. But the best is yet to come. And so as we draw to a close, let me tell you a secret. All of your disappointments, all of your other weaknesses that we've looked at this weekend are pointing to something in the future. Our heavenly home. And our problem is we've been trained to fix our eyes on this world and to have it all now. So we struggle to relate God's intention in our weaknesses to point us to what is as yet unseen. C.S. Lewis again. Most people, if they really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something, he says, that we grasp at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean, he says. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, although I doubt it. But, <laughs> but he says something in the best possible life that you could write for yourself, something has evaded us. Lewis insists that your search for happiness is an appetite, really, for heaven. So it's not true that you've never desired heaven very much. You've only ever desired heaven. You just didn't know it. Because people kept telling you it was to be found here on earth. And so when Jesus says no to some of those desires, he's training your heart and your mind to look elsewhere for them, to seek them in Christ and in your heavenly home that is yet to come. And what God is doing through your disappointments and your if-onlys is training your mind and changing the appetites of your hearts. I remember doing a summer camp, a cipher venture, with friends and it was the end of a great day and there was this most beautiful sunset and I just looked at the sun and said to a friend, isn't that, ama isn't that amazing, that sunset? And he said, yeah, come Lord Jesus. And I thought, sorry. <laughs> I just point, pointing out, it's really nice, isn't it? It's a really pretty sunset. And you were saying, come Lord Jesus. I thought he was a little bit nuts, but C.S. Lewis was saying, no, he's joined the dots. He can see what that sunset is trying, what God is communicating to him, even through the beautiful things in life. 
which is that our home is with Jesus. And the more that you understand that your greatest temptations is to long for heaven on earth where it can't be found, the more you spot that in your everyday experiences, the more you can train your hearts and your minds to seek them in Christ. That sunset was just like a movie trailer. It was just an advert advertising the film that we've yet to see. This has been a difficult topic to cover this weekend. It's painful. We'd rather not think about it. We want to just put it underground. But my prayer and my heart's desire is that it will grow you in your love of Christ, in your trust in him, in your desire to live well as a community of God's people at Christ Church Mayfair and ultimately to find your hope in your heavenly home in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, help us to see how everything that we've ever longed for is really a seeking after you, and train us, we pray, by your Spirit in those if-only moments, in those disappointments, in those experiences of missing out. Help us to see that one day is coming soon when we will miss out on nothing, and we will be fulfilled around your throne as we rejoice to be with you. Amen.